Ranked choice voting is the hot reform, and it's being driven by deep, almost existential panic. Americans are worried about democracy. That is many cities and states rethinking how they vote. For Sunday, December 3rd, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Coming up, Israel has resumed its offensive in Gaza. The type of combat that we are facing on the ground includes urban warfare, close combat, sometimes door to door, and especially explosive devices. The Biden administration wants the country to do more to protect civilians. Is that pressure moving the needle? Also, in the latest installment of Enlighten Me, Rachel Martin speaks with a Palestinian-American professor preaching peace. It's difficult to be a pacifist in the U.S. where guns are so pervasive, in a world where violence is so pervasive. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. An Israeli military spokesman says ground forces are now engaged in all of the Gaza Strip. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports troops are pushing into the south of the enclave, an area that's become increasingly overcrowded with displaced people. Heavy bombardments are being reported near Gaza's second largest city, Khan Yunis, and the southern city of Rafah. The IDF says it has located 800 Hamas tunnel shafts since the ground operation in Gaza started, out of which 500 were destroyed. It says many were found next to or inside schools, mosques, and playgrounds. International calls are mounting for Israel to protect the lives of civilians. In a televised address over the weekend, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel will continue the war until it achieves its goals, and those goals, he said, are impossible to achieve without a ground operation. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Health representatives from more than 90 countries gathered today at the U.N.'s climate conference in Dubai, endorsing a declaration urging world leaders to include health impacts in their climate plans. NPR's Alejandra Baranda has more. At past COP climate negotiations, health ministers have been a rare sight. But this year, dozens attended a landmark gathering at the meeting. Dr. Cynthia Sintyang is a health minister from Kiribati, an island nation in the Pacific. He described climate-influenced health problems his countries and many others face. Changing disease patterns, the impacts of drought, and the effects on mental health are now part of the challenges that we face at the Ministry of Health. 123 countries signed the declaration, but it doesn't go as far as some advocates hoped. Notably, it doesn't explicitly mention phasing out the burning of fossil fuels, the primary driver of climate change, and the cause of millions of air pollution-related deaths each year. Alejandro Borunda, NPR News. A special redistricting session is underway in Georgia, where a federal court found that the state's current political maps violate the Voting Rights Act. With control of Congress on the line, Georgia Republicans are proposing a new congressional map that keeps their partisan advantage intact. From member station WABE, Sam Greenglass reports. The map creates a new court-ordered majority black congressional district in West Metro Atlanta. That district would likely elect a Democrat. But Georgia Republicans still want to preserve their 9-5 advantage in Congress, so they dismantle the Democratic district elsewhere in the state, one that is not majority black but is majority minority. U.S. District Judge Steve Jones warned lawmakers not to do this. That could mean the maps end up back in court. When that happened in Alabama, a judge ultimately appointed a special master to draw the maps. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Wall Street opens higher tomorrow morning on Friday. The S&P 500 closed at a 2023 high. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. The head of the state Republican Party is supporting GOP lawmakers who are preventing approval of a new state spending plan. The representatives are blocking a House vote on a nearly $3 billion supplemental budget. It includes money for temporary shelters for migrant homeless families. The lawmakers want that funding to be considered separately. Massachusetts Republican Party Chair Amy Carnavale tells WCVB's On the Record that the shelter system needs reforms that should not be addressed in informal sessions. I also uh, would try to hold the feet to the fire of the governor and in working with the legislature to try to address this issue because, you know, she she has a responsibility here too. The Healy administration says it has been communicating with the legislature and has been taking action to address the crisis. The House is scheduled to meet tomorrow in an informal session again to try to pass the budget. Authorities say the death of a man in the parking lot of a popular Saugus restaurant appears to have been an accident. The Essex County District Attorney says 42-year-old Patrick Kenny Jr. was found stabbed outside the Kowloon restaurant last night. He died at a hospital a short time later. The Food and Drug Administration is set to grant approval this week to the first gene editing therapy. It has been developed in Boston by Vertex Pharmaceuticals along with Swiss partner CRISPR Therapeutics. The medication treats severe cases of sickle cell disease. British regulators approved the drug last month. Patriots lost to the L.A. Chargers in Foxborough this afternoon by a score of 6 to nothing. The Patriots' record now falls to 2-10. and 10. Tonight at the TD Garden, the Bruins host the Columbus Blue Jackets. Rain, patchy fog, and 40s overnight. Mostly cloudy, low 50s tomorrow, and then partly sunny, low 40s on Tuesday. It's 43 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading health care systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks, in for Scott Detrow. Intense fighting continued in Gaza today after the ceasefire there ended on Friday. Israeli officials say they're making progress against Hamas, killing fighters and destroying hundreds of underground complexes used by the militant group. But the war has also been devastating for civilians who are struggling to find safe places to take refuge. NPR's Brian Mann is in Tel Aviv, and he joins us now. Hi, Brian. Hi there, Miles. So what do the Israelis say they're accomplishing now that the fighting has resumed? Israel's military says they are now fighting across Gaza in the north and the south. Uh, That includes devastating airstrikes targeting Hamas. And also they are describing ground operations. Here's Colonel Peter Lerner, a spokesman for Israel's army. The type of combat that we are facing on the ground includes urban warfare, close combat, uh, sometimes door to door, and especially explosive devices, anti-tank guided missiles, RPGs, and sniper fire and machine gun fire. And Israel's army said in the statement today they've discovered more than 800 of these underground tunnel complexes used by Hamas uh, since this war began. 
Officials say they're making progress against Hamas, of course, in response to that October 7 attack that killed 1,200 Israelis. But the Biden administration is pushing Israel to do more to protect civilians in this conflict. Vice President Kamala Harris, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin have both come out and said that Israel has a moral responsibility to protect innocent people. How are the Israelis responding to those pushes? Yeah, Israeli officials say they've designated so-called safer zones inside Gaza where Palestinians can take refuge from the fighting. But Palestinians in this densely populated area say it's just not working. NPR's producer, Anas Baba, who's in Gaza, spoke to one man, Mohammed Mahmoud Abdullah al-Najili in Gaza, who said they're absolutely not safe places to go. <laughs> al-Najili told NPR that dozens of his family members were killed and injured in an Israeli airstrike when they thought they were in an area designated safe by Israel. NPR wasn't able to confirm his account, Miles, but we have heard from numerous sources, including the Gaza Health ministry saying that people just aren't finding refuge from Israel's offensive. The health ministry reported today the death toll among Palestinians has surged above 15,500 people with more than 41,000 civilians wounded and, and many of them children. I know there's also been reports of illness in Gaza. Can you tell us about that, Brian? Yeah, the World Health Organization is really worried about this. They've documented more than 35,000 cases of diarrhea among very young children under the age of five. There's a huge spike of cases of severe respiratory illness. And for the two plus million Palestinians there, it's just difficult now to find clean drinking water and hygiene is nearly impossible. And for now, there's really no relief in sight. That's NPR's Brian Mann in Tel Aviv. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Miles. This is news to no one. But a lot of Americans are worried about the state of democracy here. More than 8 in 10 Americans feel there's a serious threat to democracy in the U.S., according to an NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll that was conducted after the midterms. And that anxiety has many people open to new ways of doing things, even voting. Maine's Supreme Court clears the way for the first ever use of ranked choice voting in a presidential election. Open primaries and ranked choice voting could completely change the election landscape in Nevada. It's going to be, for most people, like, well, what's my ballot going to look like now? Lately, one change is rising to the top. Ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting is the hot reform. Um, and it's being driven by panic about the demise of American democracy. Larry Jacobs is a political science professor at the University of Minnesota. People are looking around, what's going to respond to this? And ranked choice voting is the it reform at this moment. Instead of choosing one candidate, in ranked choice voting systems, a voter picks a favorite candidate, a second favorite, a third favorite, and so on. Kara McCormick, co-founder of the Committee for Ranked Choice Voting, says it's something we all do all the time. We're always saying, you know, if they don't have the mint chocolate chip ice cream, can you please get me the Rocky Road? Voters in almost 50 American cities and states have decided to switch to a ranked choice voting system. It isn't new. It's been in the U.S. for a while. Cambridge, Massachusetts has been doing it for decades. San Francisco started in the early 2000s. But it was happening in little pockets across the country. And it was initially seen as sort of a pipe dream for reform-minded folks like Deb Otis. She oversees research and policy at the voting advocacy group FairVote. This method is not a huge change, but in the places that use it, 
it has brought positive impacts and it tends to start around one or two cities and then a lot of other cities in that region opt in also um, i would say the bay area of california is one of those minnesota is another area minneapolis and st paul have had it for years and then several new minnesota cities have opted in just over the last four years i asked whether there was one place that pushed it into the national conversation and she didn't hesitate alaska um, when they used it for the Senate and congressional and gubernatorial races in 2022, all of a sudden everyone was talking about ranked choice voting. That's because for advocates, Alaska showed the ways ranked choice voting could transform politics and move candidates from playing to the extremes to playing for a broader and more representative group of voters. Let's dive a little deeper into how it works. In a ranked choice voting system, Voters have the option of ranking all the candidates on their ballot from favorite to least favorite. If one candidate has the majority of the first place votes, in other words, more than 50%, the election is over and that candidate wins. If not, then the candidate with the least votes is eliminated and that candidate's voters are moved to their second choice. That keeps going until someone gets majority support. Advocates argue that the system incentivizes politicians to find middle ground in their districts. In Alaska last year, Otis argues, it worked. Voters re-elected Lisa Murkowski, a moderate Republican senator who voted to impeach former President Trump. They also elected Mary Peltola to the House, who is considered one of the most moderate Democrats in the House, in a race that included a couple of real hardliners. Advocates say another benefit of ranked choice voting is it allows voters to pick their real favorite rather than settling. Take the presidential race as the easiest example. Generally, there's a Democrat and a Republican. Whenever someone runs as a third-party candidate, there's all this hand-wringing over whether they'll siphon off votes, the spoiler effect. In Alaska, and in Maine, which will also use ranked choice voting next year, Otis says voters will just be able to vote for who they want to be president without trying to game the system and worrying that voting for a third-party candidate would help President Biden or former President Trump inadvertently. Neighbors won't be telling their neighbors, oh, you're wasting your vote if you vote for so-and-so. If, if a legitimate third-party challenge happens this year, all of the other voters in all the other states are gonna have a really hard time with that, trying to navigate what to do, trying to play the strategist and figure out how to make our votes most impactful without harming our own side. Alaska and Maine are the only states that use ranked choice voting for statewide races at this point. But next year, Nevada and other states could join them. And every year, more and more cities approve it for local races. But whenever you start messing with voting, there is going to be some pushback. What's interesting is that here, the pushback hasn't really been from one political party or the other. It's mixed and it's really regional. Like in Virginia, the Virginia Republican Party is leading the way. But then in Alaska, Republicans uh, have come out against it. In Nevada, both parties came out against it. In other places, we've had both parties supporting it. Generally, ranked choice voting is thought to somewhat dilute the power of the two major political parties in the U.S. But conservatives have started pushing back more forcefully. Five states have now banned ranked choice voting. All those states, Montana, South Dakota, Idaho, Florida, and Tennessee, are places completely controlled by Republicans. And conservative groups have also started taking aim at it, too. Jason Sneed leads the Honest Elections Project, one of those groups. And he told me ranked choice voting makes voting more confusing, which isn't what the U.S. needs right now when many voters are already sitting out of the democratic process. 
I think that we need to be careful about trying to address problems like divisiveness in politics by simply changing the system that we use to elect candidates. Um, I think that many of the issues that we are experiencing, the bitterness and the division in our politics, are symptoms of other problems. And I don't know that you know, we have to solve something at some sort of system level. But even experts who are more open-minded to the reform are skeptical it can bring about the sort of transformational change that some advocates promise. We heard from Larry Jacobs earlier. He's from the University of Minnesota, and he co-wrote a paper poking holes in a number of those claims. Most notably, he says, there isn't much evidence at this point that ranked choice voting actually decreases polarization. I think we need some caution because in America, we have a tendency going back you know, a century or more to latch on to the new kind of quick fix to what ails us in our democracy. And some of those things have not worked out well. When we look at ranked choice voting, it tends to be more white, more affluent voters who take advantage of the multiple opportunities to rank uh, candidates. So it's, it's kind of continuing and appearing to multiply the disparities in our current democracy. I talked about that theme with Andrea Benjamin, too. She's an expert on race and voting behavior at the University of Oklahoma. She's more optimistic about the potential of ranked choice voting, but she says any transformative change to American democracy is going to require more participation. In reality, the only accountability mechanism is that we agree to turn out and that we agree to chime in, right? And so if we choose, when we're talking about primaries, 15, 12% turnout, we are not, we are not keeping our end of the bargain. Benjamin says, you can change the vote tallying methods all you want, but it's still just a snapshot of the most motivated sliver of the population. Advocates argue that making the system more representative will naturally make more people want to participate because they'll be more likely to find a candidate they agree with, and they'll be more convinced that their vote actually matters. The data is pretty inconclusive, and Larry Jacobs says more analysis is needed as more places embrace the method. We need to have our thinking caps on about ranked choice voting. It does not appear at this moment to be the solution to what ails American democracy. Could it be in the future? Possibly. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Cropilio. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading health care systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. Mass General Brigham Health Plan. Rain, patchy fog, 40s overnight, mostly cloudy, low 50s tomorrow, and then partly sunny, low 40s on Tuesday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens. Residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at solargardensma.com. The Bruins host Columbus tonight at the TD Garden. The Patriots' record fell to 2-10 this afternoon as they lost to the L.A. Chargers in Foxborough, final score, six to nothing. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Israel's military says it's expanded its ground operations to every part of Gaza in pursuit of Hamas, ordering more evacuations in the crowded south, followed by heavy bombardment. Palestinians in Gaza say they're running out of places to go. 
At past COP climate change negotiations, health ministers have been a rare sight. But this year at the COP28 in Dubai, health representatives from more than 90 countries gathered today, endorsing a declaration urging world leaders to include health impacts in their climate change plans. And novelist John Nichols has died at the age of 83. He wrote the best-selling book, The Milagro Beanfield War, and other stories set in the American Southwest. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru. The Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com share. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. It's been nearly four months since western Maui erupted into flames. When you look down from the main road leading into Lahaina, all that's left are black burn marks, a singed silhouette of a historic town. There was the initial chaos and heartbreak of the disaster, but now people are in the middle of a new nightmare the recovery process. They come in flustered and stacks of papers and I don't know what I need, I don't know what to do. And it's just like, Auntie, you're okay, we'll breathe. No, no, I'm like, no, you'll breathe. Go grab a water, grab a coffee, we're not going anywhere, we'll sit right here. I will wait for you, take your time. That's Kukui Keahi. She's the operations manager for Kako'o Maui, one of the resource hubs set up to help people navigate this process. Russell Subiono spoke to her back in October for Hawaii Public Radio's podcast, This Is Our Hawaii. Russell and the producer of the podcast, Savannah Harriman-Pote, join me now to share some of that reporting. Hi, guys. Hey, Miles. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for being here. So before we get into talking about what Lahaina's recovery has been like, I want to start by asking about your podcast, This Is Our Hawaii, which launched a few months before the fires. And the idea behind the podcast is to look at all the complexities behind this idea of belonging in Hawaii, which is obviously a place that has a long history of colonization and of tourism. And then on August 8th, the fires begin and you guys go on hiatus to report, like everyone from your station, on this disaster. I imagine the fallout from the fire has put your show's theme of belonging into kind of a whole new light. Yeah, it it really did. In our previous episodes, we touched on situations that were important to us and we know would be important to many people here and would maybe shine the light on some things for people outside of our state. But Maui was an opportunity to discuss these deeper issues as it was happening, thanks to the internet and social media, with an international audience, while the situation was still fresh in people's minds. Well, and this latest episode looks at how the recovery effort is going and a lot of different complexities around that. Russell, I know you've spent a lot of time talking to people at the center of this disaster. Where do things stand right now with the recovery process? So there's two issues that are getting the most attention right now. They are the gradual reopening of the residential areas and the efforts to find displaced residents affordable short-term housing. But it's exactly that, a process a grinding one in part because of the sheer amount of paperwork involved, but also because of the emotions it brings up. 
people have lost homes, jobs, even loved ones, it can be very painful to relive the fire in any capacity. And that's something Kukui has firsthand experience with. She lost her home in Lahaina during the fire. I'm over nine generations from Lahaina and everyone in my family but one person, uh, one family member lost their home. Now, Maui fire survivors have until Monday, December 11th to apply for assistance from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. That deadline has been extended multiple times. And I know from my time living in Florida for most of my life in hurricane seasons, these sort of bureaucratic deadlines get kind of lost in the mix when people's lives are upended. Do you get the sense that there are people who would be eligible for this aid who still have not applied? Yeah. In in fact, I think I get the sense that people need more time, which isn't uncommon in disasters. These deadlines are often extended, but there's also this tricky dynamic in play. In Maui, a lot of residents feel like the people in charge failed them as soon as the disaster hit, and now they've got to rely on those same authorities for help. And that's made some people hesitant to apply for federal aid And the misinformation is making all of that worse. Right. A big part of the episode, your your all's most recent episode, is about misinformation and about trust. And Savannah, you've really looked at that issue, which is so interesting to me as somebody who spent a lot of time reporting on voting misinformation. But you report that misinformation seems to come up in disaster scenarios, too. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So this is something I started tracking almost obsessively after the fire, specifically how rumors about the fire were shaping people's feelings towards the government's response to the disaster. Again, misinformation is often rife in these circumstances. FEMA actually has people dedicated to tracking and refuting rumors in disaster zones. Wow. But the way some of these rumors captured people's attention speaks to Hawaii's unique history with land and government intervention. Like in 1893, when the U.S. government backed the overthrow of Queen Lili'uokalani, the ruler of the Kingdom of Hawaii, that legacy still shapes people's feelings towards government today. And that was evident in the discourse after the fire. We decided to focus on one rumor in particular, this false idea that if an individual signed up for disaster assistance, FEMA would be able to claim their land through something called eminent domain. Right. So eminent domain is this idea, for listeners who aren't familiar, that the government can just take private property for public use, right? Provided that there is just compensation. So the classic way to think about eminent domain is that the government wants to build a public road. But you, a private citizen, own the land that they want to build on. So the government can claim eminent domain and take your property, so long as they pay you a fair market rate for the value of your property. But just to be clear, we're talking about this in the misinformation context. Like FEMA does not actually have eminent domain rights as part of this, right? That's right. They've tried to address several false claims about land seizure, but it hasn't been enough to take away the power of this idea Especially in the early weeks of the fire, this idea was all over social media. It was being invoked in testimony in front of lawmakers, and Kukui Kiahi even hesitated to continue with her FEMA application when she heard it. Because I'm not going to lie, the, you know, when this all started and, you know, I heard all the, I'll use FEMA, for example. Oh, they're going to steal your land. They're going to steal everything. You're going to have to pay them back. I First thing I did before we even started my interview, started my case before he took anything. I I asked him every single question I could ask. I think I called five times before anything just to be like, I need to confirm this. Uh, For for just for clarification, were Mm -hmm. were you concerned that 
FEMA was going to potentially take your land? Uh, not mine. I was renting at the time, um, but I was worried about the rest of my family. We have quite a few generational lots in Lahaina still that are no, you know, our properties were burned. And many may not realize that Native Hawaiians who own land outright in Hawaii are in the minority. There have been several waves of dispossession, some of which we've covered in other episodes of our podcast. Kukui and I talked at length about the responsibility that she felt to protect her family's property. Some of my family lots are prime real estate on French Street, right on the water. You know, like, I'll be damned if someone's going to take my family land that that was where I grew up. Yeah, I mean, this isn't abstract, right? I mean, there were also reports of predatory real estate practices in the weeks after the disaster, realtors calling Maui residents who had been impacted the fire and essentially trying to take advantage of the hardship to get land that uh, might be potentially available in their eyes, right? Yeah, and one of Kukui's family members received a few of those calls. Hmm. And there are other lived experiences that are hitting people's feelings right now. Uh, for instance, Kukui also had the experience of having to move out of her home when one of Maui's last sugar plantations, the Pioneer Mill, closed its doors in the 1990s and shut down its worker housing. Many families, including Kukui's, had to move out of homes they've lived in for decades. So there are these legitimate fears that people have about losing their homes and land. And unfortunately, they sometimes manifest in these kinds of false claims like, FEMA has the right to take my land through eminent domain if I apply for disaster assistance. Right. And so FEMA doesn't have that right. But do any of the other governments involved in this, the state or the county of Maui, do they potentially have these rights? Yes, they do have that power. And mm. eminent domain law has a checkered history. There's been this kind of reckoning going on across the country about how a lot of government infrastructure projects think big multi-lane highways were built through Black and Latino neighborhoods. But eminent domain has also been used selectively after disasters to do things like relocate damaged hospitals or construct barriers after flooding. But by and large, Lahaina residents are skeptical of any government acquisition of land during the recovery process. I mean, what recourse do residents there have if they do feel like they're vulnerable to, to eminent domain? Uh, legally, none. If the government wants to take land in Lahaina, it can take land in Lahaina. I reached out to our state and Maui County to see if eminent domain was on the table, and the county didn't get back to us, and the Hawaii governor's office said that there is, quote, currently no discussion or direction on this topic. But some are saying that the reality is many people are going to lose their land in Lahaina regardless of whether or not the state gets involved. Here's Maui attorney Lance Collins, who's working with Lahaina fire survivors who are facing property loss. Before you get to the part where you have government seizing land, there's this huge area of what's basically involuntary. People have just, they basically have to give up their land because they just can't afford to rebuild. So essentially, yeah, it's not imminent domain in the sense that the government's taking it, but that there are going to be a lot of people, it sounds like, on this island who are going to lose generational homes? Correct. We're looking down the barrel of a multi-year recovery process. Some residents have mortgage payments due for houses that no longer exist. And while federal and local resources are available, there's a big question of whether or not it will be enough in the long run. So you've got this one scenario potentially of 
the local government being able to take this land or, in the other scenario, people who essentially have to give up their land because they can't afford to keep it. Are those really the only two options for, for some residents? Well, in our discussions about land ownership, one other idea kept coming up again and again, the idea of a community-owned land trust. In Hawaii, in recent years, land trusts have emerged as, a, as real engines for conservation, as well as for protecting culturally significant sites. I spoke with Olu Campbell, who is the president of the Hawaii Land Trust, which works across the state. I wasn't the first person to ask about this. We've been in nonstop conversations really since the day the fire started. I mean, I started receiving calls from various people who felt like you know there was going to be an issue involving loss of community ownership of lands and just asking you know myself and our organization if that's something that we would be interested in, in working on. So when thinking about community ownership in Lahaina, Olu says it's complicated, but possible. In fact, it was announced recently that a local woman is already laying down the necessary groundwork to establish the Lahaina Land Trust for local property owners. Yeah, but I do feel like anytime you're talking about the fundamental transformation of something like how land is owned, it is tough to imagine this system just switching overnight. How realistic is this as a solution? Well, a land trust is just one version of what community ownership could look like. Co-ops, homeowners associations, nonprofits, they could all play a role. But Olu worries that if these options for land retention don't come online quickly, that window of opportunity is going to be missed. He puts it this way, you can only move at the speed of trust. And Lahaina's recovery is going to depend on restoring that trust. And that comes down to our relationship to the land itself, to the Aina. To me, trust comes down to having a, a good relationship. And to have a good relationship, you know, there needs to be some type of shared understanding, shared value set. Using a tool like Aina to create a, a community value set among everybody and really creating a culture of responsibility to each other, responsibility to our place. Like, I think that needs to be the foundation. Lahaina has such a unique history and community that it may take a variety of paths forward to be able to restore everything that was lost. But the sense we get from the people we've talked to is that they're gonna do everything they can to make sure Lahaina can welcome home its people once again. That's Russell Subiono, host of Hawaii Public Radio's podcast, This Is Our Hawaii, and producer Savannah Harriman-Pote. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. You can hear their podcasts anywhere you get podcasts or on the NPR app. Considered from NPR News. Author John Nichols has died. He was 83 years old. Nichols published more than 20 books, most of which were set in his adopted home of northern New Mexico. Tom Vitale has this appreciation. 
1992, John Nichols told me he began writing stories when he was 10. He said by the time he attended Hamilton College in New York, he was already a seasoned writer. During college, I wrote probably a novel a year at least, never for credit, never for a class. It was just one of the things that I did to amuse myself. Nichols was born in 1940 in Berkeley, California, and raised in New York. When he was 24 years old, he finally published a book, his eighth novel, The Sterile Cuckoo, about an eccentric girl who forces a love affair with a reluctant student. It begins like this. Several years ago, during the spring semester of my junior year in college, as an alternative to either deserting or marrying a girl, I signed a suicide pact with her. The novel was adapted into a film starring Liza Minnelli as the desperate co-ed. You know, I've really been making a terrific effort to be friends with some of the weirdos around here. I mean, I even apologized to Helen Helen Upshaw. And I told Lillian Learned that I didn't know that she wore dentures, that it was just an accident and a coincidence. I don't even remember saying it about Bill Helen. I mean... Just give me another chance, okay? John Nichols said after he wrote The Sterile Cuckoo, he took a trip to Guatemala. And was really shocked by the poverty and exploitation in Guatemala and the connection between the United States' dominance of that country as its kind of personal satrapy and its misery. And I came back from Guatemala really disillusioned about being American. Nichols moved from New York to Taos, New Mexico, in 1969, where he went to work at a muckraking newspaper. New Mexico was kind of a perfect area for political work because it's so poor that it's much more like a colonial country than sort of a first world state in the United States. In 1974, he published his best-known novel, The Milagro Beanfield War, about one farmer's struggle against the politicians and real estate developers who want to turn his rural community into a luxury resort. Robert Redford directed the film adaptation, which featured John Hurd as a crusading journalist addressing a town meeting. Once wealthier people from out of state move in, they want things. They want, they want new schools for their children, not necessarily yours, for theirs. And for all of these things, they are able to pay. But at the same time, you also are going to have to pay. He took the politics very seriously. Bill Nevins is a retired professor of literature at the University of New Mexico. He says John Nichols will be remembered for his clear-eyed view of human nature, as well as for his clear-eyed view of the human destruction of nature. And I think people continue to go back to his books, especially the uh, New Mexico trilogy, including Milagro Beanfield, to get a sense of what it's like to live in a multicultural nation that's evolving. So it makes it very relevant to our present time. In 1992, John Nichols said he wanted to create literature with a social conscience that was useful, but he also wanted to create art. I think it's very political to kill yourself, to keep language vibrant, vital, alive. We live in such a nihilistic and almost fascist culture that anyone who contributes positively, you know, who has a love of the culture at some other level, even if they're only like painting pictures of sunflowers, is committing very political, radical acts. John Nichols said he wanted to write about the beauty and the tragedy and the wonder of our lives. For NPR News, I'm Tom Vitale in New York. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Up next at 6, it's the New Yorker Radio Hour. 
WBUR supporters include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. Rain, patchy fog, 40s overnight. Rain uh, will taper off tomorrow. It will be mostly cloudy with temps in the low 50s. And Jose Mateo Ballet Theater. Rediscover the magic of the Nutcracker at the Strand in Dorchester. Starts December 9th. Tickets from $25. BalletTheater.org. And we need a vacation. With over 4,000 vacation rentals on the Cape and Islands, from large to small, luxurious to modest, for over 25 years. More at WeNeedAVacation.com. The White House says the U.S. is working hard to resume negotiations for another pause in the fighting and that eight Americans are still being held hostage. One of three college students of Palestinian descent who were shot as they walked near the University of Vermont on their Thanksgiving break is now paralyzed, according to his family. A suspect has pleaded not guilty to three counts of attempted murder. And at the weekend box office, Beyonce's concert film, Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, opened in first place with an estimated $21 million. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. And it's time for another conversation from our series about how we find meaning. It's called Enlighten Me. And now I'll turn things over to my colleague, Rachel Martin. This project was intentionally designed to exist outside of the news. I wanted to talk with people about what beliefs have shaped them, what questions have affected how they look at the world. And they didn't have to be all wrapped up in a news event to justify that conversation. But in a series about meaning and purpose and our collective humanity, it's really hard to just ignore the war happening between Israel and Hamas. Soon after Israel began airstrikes in Gaza, in response to the October 7th Hamas attack in Israel, I talked to a professor of Jewish studies at UCLA. His name is David Myers. It was a moving and nuanced conversation. Today, we bring you an equally thoughtful voice. Syed Atshan is a professor of peace and conflict studies at Swarthmore College, and he is personally tethered to the news in a way I didn't expect. You'll hear that unfold a little later in the conversation. We are now eight weeks into this war between Israel and Hamas. I know that you have family there. How are you doing? Thank you for asking. It's been a really, really, really difficult uh, past couple of weeks. Uh, it's been quite brutal, actually. 
and it's been hard on so many people, especially people who have to bear the brunt of the violence most directly on the ground. But I think for many of us in the diaspora, it's been very challenging as well. Uh, and I'm coping, I'm surviving, somehow I'm keeping it together, even though there are many people I care about who are you know, really unraveling and falling apart for understandable reasons. I think in my case, what helps is that I lead a life of meaning and purpose. And that keeps me going because what I get to do for a living is help raise awareness and raise consciousness about the region that I care so much about. Also, this semester, I'm teaching a course called Contemporary Israel-Palestine. So mm. it's just the timing. It's, I, there was no way I could have anticipated as I was designing the syllabus and finalizing the course this summer, what kind of fall was, was waiting for us. Yeah. In the earlier days of the war, I mean, what kind of questions were you getting from your students? What kind of concerns? What kind of, what kind of emotion were they bringing to, to your classroom? Well, I have a diverse group of students. I have several Palestinian students. I have students who have family members in Israel. And so we yeah. have Jewish students, Palestinian Christian student, Muslim students. So I had to help find a common language and a common frame of reference so that they could hear each other with empathy and with respect. Did that work? There have been some bumps along the road uh, and I you know, can't go into too many details just to respect, you know, the confidentiality and privacy of my students. So I, I definitely want to acknowledge that there have been some challenging moments. But overall, I will say that we've gotten through them and that the students overwhelmingly did bring a generosity of spirit. Again, it's it hasn't been easy, but it's possible. And, and I, I do believe we've gotten there. I wanted to ask you, you've written particular, in particular about Christians in Gaza and, and Christians who have died in this war, um, some of whom are members of your own extended family. Why was it so important for you to draw attention to that minority group in Gaza? It's very, very difficult to actually hear Palestinian voices directly. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to also hear a diversity of Palestinian voices. That's essential too. I can't speak for all Palestinians. And no Palestinian could speak for all of us, just like no one could speak for all members of their respective community. But for me, the beauty of Palestinian society is our diversity, is our heterogeneity, and is our complexity. And we're Christian and Muslim and secular and atheist and rich and poor and rural and urban and refugee and settled and feminist and patriarchal and queer and heteronormative. And so oftentimes the Palestinian narrative, the Palestinian story gets reduced in these unidimensional ways to, for example, Hamas or to, you know, the, let's say, corruption of the Palestinian Authority or you name it. And I feel like what these focusing on these narratives does, while it's important to discuss those aspects of Palestinian society, we miss the full portrait, the mosaic, mm -hmm. and all the different, you know, parts of the Palestinian experience. You, speaking of religious diversity, you went to a Quaker school in Ramallah, long established Quaker school. 
Yes, yeah. So Ramallah Friends School, my alma mater, was established in the 1800s. Uh, my family have gone there for several generations now. Uh, it is a Quaker institution that embodies Quaker values in, in all that it does, including nonviolence, simplicity, seeing the light in every human being. I feel very, very blessed um, to have come from a family that was able to, for me, my commitment to pacifism and my commitment to Quakerism as a spiritual anchoring in my life and as a matter of faith and practice really is very, very deep. And I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm proselytizing because in the Quaker tradition, we don't proselytize, especially in the U.S. and the kinds of circles that I'm in. But it has provided me with a kind of solace that I'm very, very blessed to have. I actually do want to ask you another question or two about that. But I, I feel it's necessary and important to mention that someone else who went to that school, a young man by the name of Hisham Awatani is the 20-year-old, one of the young men who was shot in Vermont. Uh, uh, he was going to Brown University. How did you absorb that news? So for the past 15 years, I've been volunteering with the Ramallah Friends School in the college counseling office, helping mentor the seniors with their applications to the United States. And two of my mentees, two of the students that I worked very closely with, are Hisham and are his friend uh, Kinan Abdul Hamid. And so two of them are my mentees. Uh, Kinan oh, is at Haverford, right down the road from us. Uh, Hisham yeah. is at Brown. Again, I work very closely with them. And I'm very proud of the, them both. And they have a friend, Tahseen, who was their classmate at Ramallah Friends School, who's at Trinity College in Connecticut. So the three of them were in Vermont over Thanksgiving and they were wearing kufiyas, the traditional Palestinian scarves. They were speaking in Arabic and a man approached them and shot them uh, and each with bullets and- uh, I'm so sorry. I actually didn't know that you knew them. Thank you. Oh. Two of them hopefully will be okay, but Hisham is in the most critical condition because the bullet impacted his spine. He was shot in the back and it's not clear that he mm -hmm. will be able to walk. Uh, so, so we're holding him in the light and we're, we're praying for them. I'm in touch with their families, but it's, it's incredibly heartbreaking. And it's also difficult to process because if we're not safe in Burlington, Vermont, I don't know where it's safe for a Palestinian. I mean, these families entrusted us with their children. I just saw Kinan two weeks ago. I did a teach-in at Haverford College. He was there at the teach-in. He was sitting front and center. He was engaging and speaking and so passionate. And to think that two weeks later, he would be shot in this horrific way, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's really, it's horrifying. And, and my heart goes out to the families because here they are thinking, okay, our children grew up in occupied Palestine. Their families live in occupied Palestine. They're sending their children to study in the United States, thinking that this is going to be a safer mm -hmm. context and environment for them. And then this happens. It shatters that kind of conception of safety. And it also now raises questions for the families of the current seniors at Ramallah Friends School, who are now posing the question to me and to others, mm. which is, mm. will my child be safe? Mm. You know, mm. Can you guarantee that they will be protected? 
And I can't provide them with that reassurance. So I really hope that we can sober up, all of us, academics, journalists, civil society on a grassroots level, and we can call out this you know, anti-Arab racism and this Islamophobia and this dehumanization, and, and as well as the anti-Semitism that's on the rise, you know, all forms of oppression, all forms of bigotry, all forms of stigmatization, so that we can build a society that's pluralistic mm. and that's mm. accepting of all of us. How do you, as someone who, I mean, you stayed a Quaker. You didn't, you didn't just go there because it was a really great school. From what I know of you and your writings, you, you are being a Quaker is part of your identity even today. Correct. So how do you look at this awful thing, this, this awful war, but also this crime, this violent crime against these young Palestinian men, which is being investigated as a hate crime. What do you do with that? How does that sit with you as a, as a Quaker? What, how do you look at this from a spiritual point of view? Well, I could go on forever, so I want to be as succinct as possible because you're asking a profound and, and really beautiful and important question. For me, it deepens my commitment to Quakerism spiritually and as a practice in terms of pacifism because it's difficult to be a pacifist in the US where guns are so pervasive, in a world where, you know, in Palestine, Israel, where violence is so pervasive, in a world where the military industrial complex is transnational and has its tentacles everywhere we go. And so many people are so quick to turn to violence and to normalize violence. And then to look at you as a pacifist, as if there's something wrong with you, you're naive or they pathologize pacifists as if there's something like fundamentally broken about us. Mm -hmm. But we are committed to maintaining that, that witness and, and, insisting that even if it means risking our own lives, even if it means that I myself will lose my life, I am committed to never inflicting harm against another human being, particularly in the form of physical violence. This is a deep, deep, deep commitment for me. And seeing the violence that's all around us is a reminder to me of why it is that we need pacifists in society who put a mirror to society who say we want to reflect back to you the harms of violence and what it's doing and the cost as well where does the silence come in um the the silence that is imbued in quaker practice what can i just ask what you what you get from that how does that how does that come into play in this larger conflict we're talking about, but also for you, for you personally. So Quakers cherish silence. Silence is sacred for us. And there's a power and a transcendent nature to silence, especially when we come together in community in silence. So the way Quaker worship works is that every Sunday, Quakers are encouraged to consider going to what's called meeting for worship. So at the, it's, it can be called a Quaker church or a Quaker meeting house. And oftentimes the model is that you sit in silence for an hour. It's non-hierarchical. So you're sitting often with facing benches with no icons or 
symbols or displays all around you. It's a very, very simple atmosphere. It's non-hierarchical, so there's no priest or pastor. And you're sitting in that deep, deep, deep silence in community with one another. But you can break the silence if you feel moved to speak by spirit and if you have a message to share. Mm -hmm. That's not supposed to be pre-planned. So you're not supposed to go in with a script and you're not supposed to be in this, what's called the popcorn style of responding to a message that came before you. You have to allow time for silence to process if there was a message preceding your message and it should be your own unique message. So at Ramallah Friends School, we had the silence and we had meeting for worship. And when I was in high school, the second intifada was raging or the Palestinian uprising. And I remember sitting in the chapel with hundreds of people, you know, students, staff, faculty, etc. And outside, all around us, there was this cacophony of sounds, helicopters, missiles, ambulances, a funeral procession, demonstrators. I mean, you could hear all of these sounds all around you. But we were silent. And just being in that space was unbelievably healing. And I remember from a young age thinking, I need to hold on to this for the rest of my life. Like I could envision myself that I'm going to need to keep coming back to that silence, to center myself, to ground myself spiritually, and to give myself the energy to be able to go back into the quote, you know, real world. Syed, thank you so much for your time and for sharing all these thoughts. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. Syed Atshan is a professor of peace and conflict studies at Swarthmore College. And you can hear 